Welcome to the 291st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome medical anthropologist Harris Solomon to discuss COVID in India. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls time today. Thank you for joining us. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 15th, 2021, there are 377,031 deaths reported from COVID-19 in India. Bangladesh reports 13,172 deaths and 21,782 deaths from COVID-19 are reported in Pakistan. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. I'd like to read part of an obituary of Sunderlal Bahugna. And this was written by Naveen Antony and appeared June 6th under the headline, How Sunderlal Bahugna Became the Pioneering Tree Hugger. Sunderlal Bahugana's first defining contribution and perhaps his most enduring one was to the English language. In the 1970s, he began guiding a forest conservation movement that he called Chipko, which in Hindi meant to stick to. The movement's early name had been Angalwaltha, a culturally resonant term in the Garhwali language that meant embrace. That is what Bahugana and his followers did. They hugged trees to prevent them from being felled by rampaging loggers in the Himalayan foothills of Uttarakhand. By the time the world began taking notice of the peaceful agitation, the Hindi word too had embraced the Garhwali meaning. The Chipko movement has mushroomed throughout India's forest regions since it was founded a decade ago, reported the New York Times in 1982. Chipko means embrace. And from Chipko evolved the word tree huggers a catchy but derogatory moniker that critics often use to stick it to conservationists, but one that the conservationists themselves are only happy to embrace. Bahugna knew how to infuse deep meanings even into mundane words and deeds. In an interview in 2003, he predicted India's gravest challenges. Today, our lifestyle is very different, he said. We do not think about oxygen. I think the first basic need is oxygen and then water, food, shelter, and clothing. Those who employ the economic theory of nature are regarded as civilized, but those who live in perfect harmony with nature, they are the civilized people, really. And that's a quote from Sundarlal Bahugna, who at age 94 died of COVID-19 on May 21st, when the pandemic had worsened and the needs that he had foreseen. A wider goal of the Chipko movement was to conserve the ecology of the Ganja Basin. And much like the river, the movement had two headstreams, one led by Bahugna, who focused on the Bhagarathi watershed, and another by Chandi Prasad Bhatt, 
who was active in the Alakananda Basin. The movement began in 1973 when the Forest Department refused to provide hornbeam wood to a village cooperative started by Bot. The villagers needed the wood to make farm tools, but the department had auctioned the trees to a sports goods company in Allahabad. When Angal Waltha began, Bahugna had been trekking the Himalayan foothills. He joined the struggle, widened its base, and wrote articles in Yugvani, a nationalist weekly published from Dehradun, praising Bhatt as the chief organizer of the movement. In the United States, the modern environmental movement was inaugurated by a book, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which appeared in 1962, wrote the historian Ramachandra Guha. In India, the modern environmental movement was inaugurated by the Chipko movement. There's more to this article, and I'll put up the link so that people can find it under the headline, How Sundarlal Bahugna, who recently died of COVID-19, became the pioneering tree hugger. This was published June 6th of this year. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest to you, Harris Solomon. Harris is Associate Professor of Cultural Anthropology and Global Health at Duke University. He's a medical anthropologist with work focusing on the social dimensions of metabolic disease in India, of trauma and intensive care in India and the United States, and of healthcare labor during COVID-19. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Winter Grand Foundation for Anthropological Research, and the American Institute for Indian Studies. His first monograph was titled Metabolic Living, Food, Fat, and the Absorption of Illness in India. The book was awarded the 2018 New Millennium Book Prize from the Society for Medical Anthropology. The second book, Lifelines, The Traffic of Trauma, is forthcoming from Duke University Press next year. Harris Solomon, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to get a sense of where you're calling from, how the pandemic is looking there. Sure. So I'm calling in from Durham, North Carolina, the home of Duke University. Um, Durham County over the last seven days is reporting um, approximately 48 active COVID cases and 231 deaths. Um, the vaccination rate for Durham County is actually a, a bit higher than um, North Carolina writ large. It's about 40% of um, all adults are, uh, sorry, of all the eligible population is fully vaccinated. And, you know, while encouraging, um, there's also quite a high degree of vulnerability um, among populations that are unvaccinated. So um, the, the indices that look at um, vulnerabilities around uh, factors such as race, income level, um, indices for social class, um, areas of uh, rural uh, areas in North Carolina versus more urban areas like the one I live in, which has um, a kind of deeper concentrations of healthcare facilities, um, really make the pandemic quite uneven in North Carolina. You know, uh, earlier on in the vaccination drive in the United States, there was still a vaccination divide um, that was evident for people who either couldn't get time off work, um, they lived in communities with poor access to health facilities, whatever it may be. Is that, you think that's still active in North Carolina, that there are communities where people literally can't get access if they want it to vaccine, or have we crossed past that threshold at this point? 
You know, I suppose it's it's where one is based. Um, so because um, uh, Duke as a healthcare system, for example, Duke and UNC, um, because of where they're concentrated in the state, um, there's certain there's a certain sort of um, orbit or outreach to areas that might have otherwise been defined as um, having less access. So the, the footprint of vaccination availability from these major medical centers is really, really huge and, and can't be underestimated. Um, vaccinations are also pretty widely available through pharmacies in North Carolina. Um, I got my own vaccination through Walgreens. Um, and it's, it's interesting to sort of see the kind of the what, what some people are calling a lag, but I think still needs to be framed as inequities and in access um, geographically throughout the state. Um, and it, it, so to, to your question, I'm not entirely sure if it's if it's a lack of access, but I'm also wondering about kind of concentrations of access. So some people kind of look at the county level, for example, but um, if you would look at a kind of a, a county that's close to Durham County, um, things might look very different than a, a county with a similar socioeconomic profile that's very far away from a place that has a center of um, intense vaccination um, like Duke. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for thinking through that a little bit. I think it's really useful because I, I feel like there's a bit of closure in the media now around this discourse that says everyone has access. So if you're not getting vaccinated in the United States at this point, it's a choice, and so we need to now go after that sort of on an ideological basis rather than going back to this more sort of logistical um, sort of framing. Or I suppose, you know, still leave some space that there's vaccine skepticism in some communities. That doesn't mean they've refused vaccine, but that they're, they're moving towards it at a slower pace. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great way to frame it in part because the, the language of hesitancy um, has not been terribly productive, I don't think. It's, um, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's a strange logic, it's a strange word. Um, I, I remember having a conversation with someone um, about who, uh, who was, was a kind of a, I will do it, but not yet uh, language. So what is that? Is that, is that hesitancy? Is that refusal? Um, right. You know, and so I think we have, um, there's, there's room for sort of a, a, a more developed and enriched vocabulary of what it means to access vaccines, um, rather than the binary of I'm going to get it or I'm not going to get it, um, which may be the binary that captures a great majority of people. Um, but that may not actually be the language or logics that help us achieve the kind of degrees of vaccination that we want to achieve. It, it is such a radical departure though, um, you know, in terms of the case rates that you were describing, you know, from the reality of, of even six months ago, um, to be talking about those much lower numbers, reassuring numbers. With that in mind, I've been asking guests who are based in North America, if they wouldn't mind sharing a bit of, of memory, you know, memory is really not um, a, yet the right frame to talk about India, and we'll get to that. But maybe in the United States, we can begin to talk a bit in that way. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe one of your strongest associations or memories of the last 18 months? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I think um, for uh, people who do research or have family connections or any kind of connection elsewhere, um, whether that elsewhere is a different country, a different place, um, you know, sometimes these memories are associated in ways that are unhinged from one's own geographical position. And my closest to answer your question, my closest sort of association of 
COVID over the last 18 months is actually an imagination of what it must have been like or could have been like in the casualty wards of the public hospitals in Mumbai where I have conducted research for many years. Um, Those casualty wards um, are often the first stop for primary care for many people, often the city's poorest. Um, They're reflective of the way that hospital-based casualty care is a point of access for biomedical care for many people in India um, who may not go to a private family doctor, for example, may just go straight to the hospital. And so my sort of memory is actually an imagination. Um, It's been a constant imagination. It's been a kind of a wondering and a question because I know that space and I I know it sounds and um, it's kind of, it's it's literal, it's spaces, you know, how many beds are around the edges of the room where the, um, you know, where the, uh, the oxygen cylinders are, the sound that the oxygen cylinders make. I think a lot of my sort of memories or sort of wonderings that are sonic. Um, there's a scraping sound of the oxygen cylinder moving across the tile floor when anyone would come in um, complaining of breathlessness or anyone with asthma, for example, or an elderly person who seemed to have any kind of coronary issue. Um, and the orderly would drag the oxygen cylinder across the floor. And I just remember that kind of scraping sound. And I'm, you know, I, I guess my memory of the last 18 months is a wondering of what it must have sounded like, both in its presence, but also its absence, um, in light of the fact that oxygen was in such incredible demand and short supply in many settings in India, including Mumbai. And so I think my memories are really tied to that, that mm. space. Um, and uh, my, I had a family member who um, had a medical incident and I had to go into a hospital in Florida uh, in November of 20, uh, 2020 and um, pre-vaccination times. And just sort of seeing the ER in light of this other ER, you know, mm-hmm. really, I think, cemented that. So I think my, my memory is of my memory and kind of attachments to COVID are really based in the ER as kind of a, a space, um, a space that, you know, many of us have been fortunate to not have to even yeah. uh, enter. I am I'm so glad that you answered that question for me and that you answered it in that way, because I think that you tapped into some things that I've heard other people talk about of some of the defining features of COVID, which is it's a very strange sort of disaster, both in the pace that it works, in the geographical scale of it, but also in the sort of lack of access to the sites of trauma and, and here you are describing in this anthropologically really dense detail, the sound of the scraping or, you know, the, the, the sound of the equipment and things like that, of a space you don't have access to, but you're, you're worried about it. You're thinking about it. And that's based in memories that you have. I just wanted to linger on that a second, because I think it's a really powerful set of observations. And I've heard other disaster researchers kind of groping for how to describe this disaster, which has taken place oftentimes out of sight, behind places we don't have access, we shouldn't have access, you know, to them necessarily. But that doesn't mean we're not wondering about them. It doesn't mean we're not worried about what's happening in those places. 
Sure. And, you know, for people who do research in these places, um, you know, you get different types of attachments to them. Um, if you stay long enough, you might develop attachments to the staff, as I did. Um, so I wonder frequently about the staff, um, the clinical staff, but also the support staff um, who make the place run. Um, without them, there would be no medicine. Uh, without the orderlies, there would be no medicine. Without the sweepers, there would be no medicine in the same way that in the ED it, at Duke Hospital, without um, environmental services, which is the term used for the cleaning staff, there would be no medicine. Um, without technicians, there would be no medicine. Right. So, you know, um, it, I think thinking spatially and sensorially also helps me kind of uh, de-link COVID from the kind of lockbox of the doctor-patient binary, um, which is a really important one, and I don't want to you know undervalue it at all. But um, the minute one kind of steps out of it, you can begin to think about who else is in the room. And for me, it's the staff and it's the family, um, families of patients who are um, waiting and uh, doing everything they can to make someone live <laughs> and frequently struggling with the fact that the hospital may not have something on offer to help them live or maybe just be doing whatever they can um, given the circumstances. And, and I think that's been quite a universal. Um, I would not call it an equalizer. <laughs> I don't wanna say that it's by any means equal but I do think that, for example, families of um, patients with, uh, who have suspected or confirmed COVID in the emergency department at the hospital that's closest to me, to Duke Hospital, are similarly to families of patients in the Mumbai Public Hospital where I work, um, often just deeply concerned and want to throw everything at the matter in order to resolve the matter because um, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, so much was not known. And um, so much was in, in many ways um, improvisational or experimental and um, success was not guaranteed. Uh, and for the families and the patients who were involved in that kind of early stage, you know, you, you opening with a kind of a memory of the death, I think is so important. And I think a lot about the people whose um, deaths actually enabled the expertise that now is cemented in terms of kind of protocols and practices um, around COVID care uh, that enable others to live and, and how those deaths, if at all, will ever be narrated. So many themes here that we're going to return to and throughout this call. I, and maybe just pause here for a second. I mean, you're a scholar whose work is is um, transnational. I mean, you focus in the United States, but you also focus in India. Um, and let's start with, with that. And I guess I would like to, you know, I read statistics um, knowing that they're insufficient and even asking the question, you know, how's the COVID situation in India, it's like, well, how's the COVID situation in the world? I mean, it's almost a nonsensical question to a certain degree, but it, but having said that, um, I wonder when you go looking for data or to try to understand what's happening in India around COVID, where do you turn? Mm -hmm. um, I turn to many places and it kind of depends on what I want to know. Um, and what I want to know has changed drastically over the last six months. Um, and particularly in the last few months in the wake of what's being called the second wave. 
Um, if I want to know about um, something like uh, the figure that's being called excess death, which is the sort of the remainder, <laughs> the unaccounted for deaths that are not being accounted for in otherwise standard metrics. Um, it's very difficult to find that in um, established databases. You know, the, the things one pulls from our world in data or from the World Health Organization, or even from governmental websites for, for India, which are relying on very particular forms of, of reporting. Um, this is where I actually find um, value, deep, deep, deep value in um, the work of Indian journalists. And uh, I should say that that um, reporting on health in India, you know, it, it, depending on, it really depends on what kind of media outlet one is attached to. And, and that beat is a really complicated one. It's a beat that has had a lot of disinvestment, you know, having written a book about um, diabetes and obesity that, you know, often I would see health reporters with amazing, amazing skills be moved to these kind of like diet fad stories or whatever in major media houses. And it's been really, um, unfortunately, uh, telling that um, there's been this sort of intensification of, of um, media coverage of COVID-19 in India, and often it's journalists, um, some who are attached to major media outlets and others working independently, um, and many of them report on Twitter. And mm. so I actually turned to Twitter for a lot of that on the, on, on the, on the matter of excess death. Um, there are a couple of people who are, um, you know, key scholars around this or key data journalists, and, and I can, you know, put those um, those folks in in the in the notes for for those who are interested in following them. But um, I think that, you know, Twitter's become a really interesting source. You can see someone kind of independently do data visualization or journalism, and then that might get picked up by another reporter, and it starts getting aggregated. So now, for example, you can actually see major news stories about excess death. And so um, that's actually a, a really important um, sort of data shape that I think we're learning about through the Indian case study that is why, uh, possibly quite applicable in a lot of other settings um, and shouldn't be delimited just to India. The other kind of figures that I really want to know are um, geographical ones. And this is, again, where journalism is really important. Um, and this is because as the sort of second wave moves <laughs> through India very unevenly, because it's, of course, a, a very, um, I mean, to call it diverse is, is you know, I'm sort of at a loss for words of how to describe it as a nation state when it's a, it's a nation state of many, 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 many nation states in a way, even though it has individual states and is one country. Um, the pandemic is, is, is unfolding deeply unevenly and particularly in relationship to kind of the differences in rural and urban areas. And this is where journalistic um, reportage is, is, is also very important, not just in terms of epidemiology and numbers, but to get a sense of what the pandemic means and how it's being encountered in different places, particularly in places where people are facing the choice of, of you know, where do you take someone? Um, you know, if you go to a primary health post and that's the kind of the only place that you can find care, uh, elsewise you have to kind of drive or put someone in an ambulance at great cost for hours on end to the next small town or big city or small city, et cetera. So that kind of reporting is also really, really, really important. And these are things that, you know, um, official accounts just can't capture because they're not on the ground. 
And as a person with, you know, deep ties, um, in particular, we're talking about, you know, a particular hospital in Mumbai, for example. Um, I know we've all been, you know, we don't want to get in the, in the way of busy people, but I wonder, have you also been able to, to reach out to folks you know there individually? I have, and, um, you know, people aren't doing well. Um, I, and I should say that many of the people that I reach out to, um, particularly the doctors, are from a, a specific kind of educated social class that has um, uh, maybe didn't quite, maybe experienced COVID as um, a kind of a care provider um, in the first wave, but in the second wave, experiencing it as both care providers and also um, finding members of their own families dying or positive or and needing care. Um, people in urban settings finding that everyone in their apartment building is positive. And then of course the kind of how that unfolds will be deeply uneven depending on who the, what the body is of, of a given person. Um, people's classmates, their batchmates, just, you know, uh, uh, families, members who are um, close and far, cousins, and you know everyone has lost someone, and um, that loss is is just you know I think a reckoning is not yet it, it, a reckoning is emergent. Um, so that that's that's there. The second thing is I I, I also am finding in talking to people that um, it's 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 relentless, right? That. Um, uh, particularly in the ways in which uh, COVID is not, uh, you know, it's not just that someone leaves the hospital. We're also seeing the exact, in India, seeing the exact same things that have happened in many other places, particularly in the U.S., maybe because there's more visibility, which is kind of the, the chronicity of COVID. Um, whether one wants to think about that as long COVID or simply as recurrences of particular episodes of kind of the sequelae of COVID infection. Nevertheless, you know, just leaving the hospital is not always the end of the story for a lot of people. And so the, um, the physicians that I'm close in close contact with are also seeing that kind of, um, you know, that sort of resurgence of the patient they had seen before, who they thought they were done with, who, who was happy to be out of the hospital after quite a great struggle is just appearing again. And um, so many of the dramas are getting replayed. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking with medical anthropologist Harris Solomon today about COVID in India. And Harris, I wonder if we could just go back and talk a little bit about some of your previous work. You'll have a book which appeared in 2016 titled Metabolic Living. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that work and how maybe now you perhaps see that work differently or you see some connections looking back through COVID to that earlier research that you did. Sure. Um, you know, in that book, I was really interested in how um, we might understand the emergence of kind of the uh, the epidemics as such of diabetes and obesity in South Asia, um, and particularly arguing against two easy narratives of um, of kind of the McDonaldization thesis of uh, you know social class enrichment, therefore diabetes, therefore 
you know, and, and really thinking instead about um, diabetes and obesity and other metabolic diseases as sites of um, kind of connection between the body and the environment. And so for me at that time, um, the kind of the object that connected bodies and environments was food. And so in relationship to COVID, I mean, there's a lot to think about in, in, that in that argument. Um, one way of thinking about it is that instead of food, I'm thinking about a virus um, as, you know, the thing that connects the body to the world and all the things that we do to manage those connections, many of those things which we can't uh, manage, <laughs> um, that we're, not, we're at a loss to manage. And obviously there's quite a difference between a metabolic disease in some senses and a viral infectious agent. That being said, there's also a lot of resonances between the kind of the cascades of, of um, kind of physiological changes that metabolic disease impels and COVID-19 um, insofar as it's, it's many people think about it as a circulatory, as a respiratory illness of, caused by a viral agent that also has deep circulatory effects. And the way that we often think about this epidemiologically is about factors like diabetes and obesity being um, pre-existing conditions or comorbidities, right? So I, I think about a lot of the kind of the carryover of metabolic disease to COVID. And, and this is kind of um, my, my bigger point here, which is that the, the line between infectious and chronic is not always so clear. And again, to kind of revert back mm. to the kind of the, the thoughts about long COVID, which we just know so little about, um, and we'll hopefully learn more sadly in the years to come, um, if it's given the attention that it's due, um, that, you know, the, the kind of the pandemic as such um, defined only in infectious terms is really um, a limited way of thinking about a pandemic. I think we have a long way to go in thinking about um, getting out of the binary of infectious or chronic. Um, and I think COVID may actually change the ways that we think about pandemics themselves and, what, and, and on what terms. And the last thing I'll say about the kind of the prior book in relation to now is just a kind of a, a just an empirical feature, which is um, thinking a lot about malnutrition in that book to make sense of the rise of diabetes and obesity. I thought a lot about malnutrition in the wake of COVID-19 in India. Um, you know, the, the early lockdowns um, in India in 2020 and even subsequent lockdowns that were much smaller um, and the kind of the resulting um, movement of migrants across the country resulted in deep, deep socioeconomic insecurities and food insecurities for many of the poorest populations of India. And kind of the, the sequelae of that are, are only now beginning to surface. So thinking about COVID again, not just only in terms of infection, but in terms of all of these other um, orbits it has of bodily damage. I mean, I have to say there's so much in what you're describing there. And, and as a historian, I'm always really attentive to how people talk about time. Mm -hmm. And, and I really appreciate that you, you talk about, you know, you're very conversant, obviously, and, you know, so the, the language about talking about chronic disease, infectious disease, and the different categories that forces us in, and then your provocation that we need to be super critical of those categories at the same time and that interplay with COVID 
with preconditions that may predispose someone, you know, pre-existing, so-called pre-existing health condition, which is just health condition, um, which may predispose someone to infection and then long COVID, which I, like you, really worry is not receiving, so far as I can tell, the kind of, it's not receiving the media attention, almost none, but the funding that's gonna be necessary to even document long COVID cases. And so somehow we wanna treat it so much as an infectious disease, as an event, as an emergency, we will lose sight of when it will then slip into this sort of uh, longer frame that we might, you know, tend to talk about as as chronic. And that's a political decision in, in yeah. some level. We don't like to think about medicine in that way necessarily, but it is, right? It is. I mean, I think the question here is um, what comes after emergency? Um, and that's a question I think a lot about in my own work about traumatic injury and trauma. Um, because there's a certain allure to emergency. I call it ER mind, <laughs> you know, and there's a certain drama to it and there's a narrative structure to it. Um, and there's many things about that structure and way of thinking the world um, that have a lot going for it, um, but it also has its limits. And um, I think many people uh, who have uh, the kind of unending sense of COVID, <laughs> even though they may be counted as recovered, um, you know, whether they're patients or um, in the case of my own research, uh, caregivers, um, you know, the story isn't over. So what do you do like, when, the when, when your sort of narrative structure of emergency is, is um, you know, closes the doors and it's like shows over folks were done, um, but the show's not over and people aren't done. Um, so what, what are the ways, what kind of languages and ideas and um, um, words do we have to allow for people's stories of endurance, um, both in terms of their suffering and in terms of their recovery um, to, sh to kind of come to light. And I, I am concerned that, you know, there is a sense of, um, you know, there's, there's a really great uh, value in thinking about preventing the next pandemic. And that discourse, the kind of resurgence of that discourse, um, which we saw with flu, we, we mm -hmm. see, we've heard this one before, we saw it after SARS, we saw it after H1N1, but this is, you know, a new one. And what are we gonna do for the next pandemic? Totally merited. But the sort of the insistent on nexus is is mm -hmm. really um, it, it, it does a certain violence to people, right? Because there's there's a way in which people are still living it, and um, I, I, I'm concerned about the the kind of the rapid page turn. It's such a, a valuable and transferable set of insights that you're bringing forward here, and I think disaster researchers, or generally who like myself hate the word because it's so event focused i use it but i would love for our work to reach a point where the word becomes useless in a sense because you know even our, our notion of like a hurricane season or something like that when the reality is there's a good number of people who are still trying to recover from hurricanes that are 10 years ago um, but that we don't leave space for that sense of the lingering or the connection across across time I, I do want to talk about you know having said all that let's let's talk about emergency for a second or, let, or at least let's talk about the ICU mm. because that's some of the work that you have ongoing um, and it's even where I started where we started our discussion and you were remembering your anxiety about I used the word anxiety you didn't but 
it sounded like anxiety about not being able to be in a space where you know something emergent is happening. And that's the ICUs in the Indian hospitals where you have focused your research. So let's talk a bit about your work on intensive care in hospitals in India. I'm fascinated how you got into this work, how one even gets access into those kind of sites, how one structures a study like this. Sure. I mean, I, um, I got into it um, thinking about traffic um, and particularly about traffic accidents in Mumbai, um, which has been the site of my work um, for quite a long time. Uh, the neighborhood in which I had lived during the research for my first book, um, I was close to my neighbors and several people that had family members die in traffic accidents. And um, the kind of the figures around mortality and morbidity in um, in India around traffic accidents is, is, is quite dire. 400 people die each day in road traffic accidents. I mean, I'm sure these figures probably look different during a time of lockdown and this is pre-COVID times. Um, Mumbai has a particular kind of shape to the to this sort of um, enumeration because it has one of the world's most uh, busy um, uh, public transit systems, um, which is quite amazing and also quite injurious. Um, 10 people dying each day on the trains um, when they're running at full capacity. And so I became really interested in the ways in which we might understand traumatic injury as uh, an interface between the body and the city. And um, I was very fortunate to have mentors who had connections or themselves worked in trauma wards of public hospitals, which see the highest caseloads because trauma and tra traumatic, when I say trauma, I'm, I'm here using the surgical definition of a blunt or penetrating wound that is immediately life-threatening for the purposes of kind of discussing this. Um, although of course, the kind of the psychic dimensions of trauma are certainly relevant as well. Um, but in thinking about trauma, um, you know, they had had connections or worked in trauma wards in the public hospitals and trauma affects the poorest populations of the city and of Indians kind of writ large, you know, um, at most, because if you just think about it, it's people who can't afford to be in the protective cage of a car, for example, or maybe in a, a higher, you know, a, a, a class of a train compartment that doesn't have uh, as much density as the kind of the, the lower price tickets that have um, higher class density train compartments. And so through them, I got access to the trauma ward. I originally thought that the trauma ward would just be one site for a kind of a study. And I would look at, you know, um, do a lot of work on the trains and thinking about the train stations. Um, and I kind of just um, uh, fell in literally to the trauma ward as sort of um, a diverse ecology of the world uh, unto itself. Um, and began to follow cases as they moved into, through the casualty ward of the hospital, then into the trauma ward, into the ICU of the trauma ward for treatment, into surgery also, before, during, and after. Um, and then for the people who um, unfortunately died, I um, observed autopsy and forensic work in the hospital morgue to understand what trauma looks like after death. And for the people who lived and who were discharged, um, I visited many discharged patients at their homes to kind of understand trauma's endurance um, once back into the home. So even though it's not quite a line for everybody, I did try to kind of follow a case as it kind of moved through the hospital and through the system. 
you were describing earlier a really complicated uh, sort of assembly of people as well as technologies. Mm. So these are really uh, complicated spaces. Many people, and I'm imagining the pace. Of course, a lot of what I would understand about, even as you're describing this, you're describing something and I'm immediately, my mind is going to like hospital television programming that I watched in the 1980s. And so we, we reach for whatever mm -hmm. metaphors are available to us and that must be completely inadequate somehow. But still, I guess I can imagine a bit of the of the pace, but maybe my understanding of the pace is wrong. Maybe it's more slower and deliberate than than I think at the pace of television. I don't know. So tell us a little bit more about who's there and what it feels like to be in that space in terms of how things are moving. Yeah, uh, ER mind. It's an amazing. It's, right. it's, exactly. It's, you. I mean, I'm not, not a critic. I'm, I'm with you. I walked into it with that with that mindset and. You know, it's um, the longer one stays. I, you know, did research off and on for five years. Um, one sort of gets a sense of both the kind of the pacing and the and, and the unpredictability of pacing, the ways that cases cluster, um, the ways that there can be um, stretches of incredible downtime, um, the ways in which overload can happen, and the ways in which things can be um, quite well managed at for a large part of of, of, the, of a day. So it's difficult to talk about kind of pace in, in a kind of a general sense. Um, who's in there, I think, is a, is a really great question. And I'm glad you asked that. Who's in there are patients, their family members when they're allowed in, which is, of course, uh, something that I've thought a lot about during COVID in the US around restrictions around family members, because, of course, family are often the ones who are um, the kind of uh, integral providers of care. And they do the care that that the hospital can't or won't, mm -hmm. um, and their absence is is a is a real problem for patients <laughs> in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, it's a structure of uh, at the it's a big public hospital. So, like big public hospitals in the U.S. or academic medical centers, for example, the care is often done intensely by um, trainees. So that means residents and attendings who oversee them. It's a teaching hospital, so there are senior faculty who monitor everything and go on rounds every morning, and so everything is also a lesson. There's a lot of pedag pedagogy at the bedside that's done. Um, and it's also an interesting um, choreography of medicine because trauma surgery as such and trauma medicine as such doesn't quite have the same residency structure in India as it does in the US. India is a deeply bifurcated, privatized, and then kind of a, 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 a widespread public hospital system. Um, and while there may be seats for um, specialty in trauma medicine in the private sector, um, in public hospitals like the one I work in, there's a kind of an amazing choreography between general surgery, anesthesia, orthopedic surgery, and neurosurgery that goes on in a trauma ward. Um, and so anesthesia is the one who is sort of the kind of the specialty that's governing the ICU. And because, of course, it has to do with palliation and respiration, ventilation, and these matters. Mm. Um, and uh, besides the doctors, there's nurses. There are orderlies, there are cleaners, there are techs, there are pharmacists. So it's it's really a world unto its own, um, with people moving in and out constantly, um, including me. Um, 
And so, you know, kind of who's in the room at any given moment is, is something that I'm always, a question that I'm always really interested in. Who's around the bed? And, and how do we think about a patient's story um, sometimes from their standpoint and sometimes from the standpoint of those who are around them? Has, has it been the case in the, in, throughout the pandemic that scholars such as yourself have been denied access to these ICUs? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, for me, um, I was in India at the kind of the beginning of the of the pandemic in 2020 um, mm. and then left. And um, my own relationship to this question is, is less one of denial and more one of refusal um, because I felt that I had been on an international flight and um, I refused to go to the trauma ward. Um, you know, a room full of patients on... Um, assisted ventilation um, in the midst of an uncertain, but probably airborne. I mean, although at the time people were thinking airborne, but also, you know, um, contagious in all kinds of other ways, we're not sure. Um, it just seemed like an immense privilege to be able to kind of go in, right? And so, you know, thinking, <laughs> I think it's it's always good to think of ourselves both as um, a, a, a bodies under threat, but also bodies who can threaten. Um, and that was my relationship to, to my own field site. So I didn't want to study um, COVID as such in that hospital, um, also because I knew I would be in the way, um, unable to provide care and knowing kind of the um, intense ways in which miscommunication can happen because so much falls in the gaps as people are trying to shuffle a case around um, to all the kind of way stations of care that it needs. And the, the potential for miscommunication is so great. And the stakes uh, with COVID in it, you know, getting care, the right care early on are so high. Um, I felt I would be in the way if not an, you know, kind of an infectious threat. So my, my relationship to it was much more about kind of a, um, a withdrawal than a, yeah. than a denial. Um, there have been a lot of good reports from journalists who've been had access right. to the hospitals. Um, and I think they've been kind of the, my, my go-to um, as they, they do their own kind of ethnographic and social science work. I think that's, that's incredibly valuable. I appreciate your sharing that. And it distresses me a little bit too, um, not your decision, but just the problem itself that the pandemic or any disaster could get so bad that we actually do have to sort of absent that the observer or the the analyst, the, the social scientist in this instance has to absent themselves from the, from the space. And this may sound like a... To, to a physician, this may sound like a crazy thing to say, what I'm about to say, but, but I do worry about the gap of data, yeah. the kind of insights that you bring to an ICU, and then to not have you there when the pandemic is unfolding in India or in an ICU in the US, that's a tremendous loss to the potential of how we're gonna understand this disaster. You know, that, that may be so. Um... And at the same time, I mean, I mean, I, I welcome that perspective, and I and I think that's there. Um, you know, at the same time, I I, I think the stakes for um, just letting patients be uh, are so they're so high. Yeah. Um, 
And my own COVID-related research in the U.S. is very, looks pretty different than my research in India, um, but nevertheless still isn't with patients. Um, it's with providers, and and that's very deliberate. I I um, I think there are people who are doing ethnographic and social scientific research that's incredibly valuable um, on COVID sort of in situ. My own relationship to it is just more, um, I, I think it's a kind of a, you know, a, a politics of knowledge. And I, I guess I would I would rather there be the kind of the loss of data or the kind of yeah. retrospect, re retrospective take than an in situ take um, if it, yeah. what it means is giving people space to just um, get in and get out, uh, get the care they need and, and get out. No, I totally value that. And and in fact, I didn't even invite, you know, my own little corner of the world. I didn't even invite um, essential workers on COVID calls for months and months and months. And finally, somebody said, you know, you haven't any doctors on. And I said, I don't feel comfortable asking it. It's a great a doctor nurse. or a nurse. Because they don't have an hour right now. That's if they have, exactly an, hour, right. if they have an hour right now, they should be sleeping, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think that the pandemic has also, um, I hope, has inculcated in, in, in researchers like myself um, who do this in situ embedded, you know, kind of work in healthcare settings, um, a reminder of the importance of um, uh, allowing the question of, uh, ca calling the question of like, should this just, should we just let this be? Right. Um, like, uh, you know, I feel like that's often not allowed to be a tenable question in in the work that um, the kind of the worlds that I circulate in, or at least if it is, it's not given the air that it needs to breathe. And I, and I really do think that this gets back to our, our, our kind of thing about emergency. Um, what kind of knowledge is necessary for emergency? Um, and uh, how do we think about the relationship between knowledge and care? Is knowing always the thing that's most at stake? Um, and sometimes it may not be. I, I wonder, maybe we could talk a little bit about how you see, uh, I don't know if you pivoted, if you were already sort of tracking ICUs in the US uh, uh, alongside the India you know, um, work that you've done, or if you pivoted to focus on the US because that's where you've been throughout the pandemic. Maybe talk a little bit in that comparative mode, if you would. Sure. Um, it's a bit of a happenstance, um, amazing story. Uh, again, being very lucky of having mentors. Um, a, a senior ICU physician um, uh, uh, audited a, a class that I taught, an undergraduate class that I taught uh, on medical anthropology. And so I got to know him quite That's well. Great. Yeah, <laughs> pre-pandemic pre times, right? A little scary to be talking about, you know, something with an ICU doc in the room. Yeah, sure. And then kind of at the beginning of, of 2020, um, so this was in 2019, and then in, at the beginning of 2020, you know, we reconnected and said, well, maybe we should do something, you know, could we do a study together? And, and, and indeed, um, that's what we wound up doing. And so it was through that link that I began a, a collaborative study um, with three intensive care physicians um, about uh, kind of the, the the work of care, the labor of care in intensive care um, during COVID in um, American hospitals. Um, we were interested in kind of the questions uh, that were being posed in 2020 about, you know, what, um, about heroism, about frontline work, um, what essential work was, what it looked like, and, and mainly just trying to get um, uh, snapshots of accounts of 
healthcare workers in ICUs, which is where so much of COVID care was being done. Um, aside from emergency rooms, it was often being shuttled to ICUs because of this, the, um, the kind of the expertise in respiratory management mm -hmm. that critical care physicians have. And what we wound up doing was in unintentionally um, doing a year-long study that kind of went from May of 2020, or a little bit before until now, um, that was able to kind of um, engage and um, characterize and sort of collate and think with the narratives of work of physicians, of nurses, of technicians, of environmental service workers, of um, coordinating workers, of administrators um, who work in intensive care throughout this time period. So this is kind of the kind of the the waves of 2020, <laughs> the summer, the fall, the um, the rollout of vaccination in early in late 2020 and early 2021 for healthcare workers up until now, where we're mm. kind of seeing that chronic chronic care for COVID. Mm. So um, we've wound up having kind of a portrait of healthcare labor. Um, over the course of, of the past year, quite unintentionally. Um, and that's that's what the study has um, surfaced as. Well, that is amazing. Uh, and I cannot wait to, to read, uh, to dive into some of that. Maybe you could share some of the top line findings. I mean, you know, aside from what I guess we've all sort of taken away from this is that the medical system in the United States broadly defined has suffered, was overwhelmed, and shows the inequalities, not only for patients, but inequalities within the medical labor system itself. But you must have, I mean, beyond that, you must have, I mean, every day must have been just, um, uh, like, I can only imagine how much you were learning in that space, uh, of going below those headlines. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it harkens back to your your point about, you know, inviting people on, um, healthcare workers on for the COVID calls, um, and like, who has an hour, right? And we would talk to people in their cars, and, you know, if they had an hour at home, or, you know, it was, it was amazing, the kind of the generosity that people gave, but the, one of the reasons people gave that, I think, were so generous is because it was so troubling. Um, um, the ways in which, um, you know, kind of you ask about the kind of the key results or insights, and I would say our principal insight is that COVID has to be understood presently and, and continually as a crisis of labor. It's a crisis mm. of healthcare work. And once one kind of begins to approach it with a critical labor lens, one can begin to ask about the conditions of work in which care operates. Um, care, whether that's being done by healthcare workers as such, the care work that families do, the very work that patients, of course, do themselves, struggling to breathe and navigating a healthcare system and enduring to kind of, I mean, being a patient in, in, in an ICU I mean, is, is um, not easy and is itself laborious to survive as labor, right? But we've been focusing on, um, on, on, on work and, and thinking through particular themes and analytics such as rationing. So rationing, for example, is often thought of as a crisis of supply. And that is indeed the case. We saw this incredible lack of the most basic thing like an N95 mask um, or test kits or swabs. 
But there was also a lot of rationing of, of work and thinking about who was on which assignments and how and how those decisions were made. And it kind of leads us to think about um, of COVID work is deeply embodied. Um, it helps us um, understand the ways in which people were exhausted, though it also helps us understand in a different sense the way that kind of appeals to resilience are really complicated because um, you know there's a lot of language, um, particularly early on, about healthcare heroes and kind of appeals to resilience. And in one sense, we wanted to kind of allow people to feel like they were heroes, right? If that was a resonant discourse for them, we've published a little bit about how it was very unevenly received by our interlocutors. Some really were like, yes, I'm a hero. And other people thought, I hate that term. Mm. This is just my job. But we're really trying to think about healthcare work as work um, and not simply as um, a service that is given, um, particularly in the landscape of American healthcare, which is deeply privatized, financialized, um, and um, riven with uneven access. So um, that's kind of our main um, focus right now is trying to get our, these accounts that are really um, intimate accounts of, of people who were by the bedside in a moment where so much was unknown um, and uh, you know sweating in PPE um, for hours and hours, nurses who would be in a room for eight hours on end, they would just get everything they could get because nurses kind of normally go in and out of a, of a room, but in a, you know, in a COVID positive patient's room, you would just gather everything you could go in and just stay there yeah. for hours, hours and hours and hours and just only being able to access things, you know, through this glass door, that's glass door and window, you know, the, the kind of the, the spatial um, divides of COVID were really um, intriguing to us. And again, harking back to my work in India, the presence and absence of family was really resonant as well. Um, I think it tells us a lot about kind of the ways that care work is done and who fills in for <laughs> others um, when, you know, family members are not around. That perspective, I and mean, particularly um, bringing in family or the patients themselves to, to discuss the work of what's happening in that space is a really profound one uh, to me. And um, one, you know, it opens up, of course, broader discussions about inequalities in um, gender distribution of, of labor. And then you know, when the labor of care for someone is engaged, that means other things, other kinds of work are not getting done or someone else is doing that work. And so it is, I think, a really productive way to, to think about this pandemic and tear down some of, again, Part of our discussion, kind of meta narrative, our discussions sort are of tear tearing down some of these received categories. You know, so who's working in the ICU? It's the physician and the nurse, and you're telling us it's a much you know broader range of labor that's laborers and types of labor that's being performed in that space. I just want to note, I did a previous COVID call with um, pulmonary physician Gabriel Boslett from Indiana. Yeah. And I mean, I was that was an amazing conversation and and like this one so um, rich in its understanding of the varieties of experience in these spaces. And Gabriel is talking about exactly what you've said. Um, the absence of family in this space has been really disastrous for physicians. I never would have thought of that. But when you think about it as a sort of team of people working in a variety of different ways, the family not being there then puts extra demands on other people in the space. I don't know, that seems to resonate with kind of some of your observations as well here. Certainly it does. And, um, you know, there's, uh, 
you know, I think we know, but don't necessarily acknowledge the work, um, the emotional labor that not only doctors do, but certainly nurses and techs. I mean, we think about um, even um, environmental service workers are often the ones who um, are, are most frequently in, a, in non-COVID times are in a patient's room. And there are the kinds of possibilities, uh, a labor lens really helps us understand the possibilities for intimacies to develop in unexpected ways. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and once we see those, then we can begin to ask, you know, what structures are in place to enable care? Who, again, this question of who's in the room and who's not in the room and, um, uh, what are the ways in which um, bodies are emplaced in the room and, and how are they being compensated accordingly um, for the work that they do? An eight-hour shift is different than spending eight hours in a COVID-positive patient's room. Just the very physics of exposure are completely different for someone who kind of jumps in for <laughs> an observation and a consult and someone like a nurse who has to spend six to eight, six hours in a room, right? That before vaccination, the stakes of exposure were so high, yeah. so high, right? So labor, labor um, allows us to think about, or I hope in, um, empowers us, a kind of a labor lens challenges us to think about, you know, um, what does it mean for um, someone to only be um, protected minimally, but forced to spend maximal amounts of time in a kind of an exposure scenario for which um, they may not be be adequately compensated. Almost up on time in my COVID calls discussion today here with Harris Solomon. Harris, I did want to ask one more question about this in terms of these projects. So this will make an interesting, and I guess you're already doing it, um, way of comparing the COVID-19 experience from India to America. And I wonder when we look, you'd have to speculate, I guess, at this point, but, you know, looking from that ICU in Mumbai to the ICU where you've been in the U.S., similar experience? Is, is there something about the ICU which is somehow um, defies uh, national experiences. It's a, it's a special place, which is somehow similar across those distances, or would you expect we'd see some very unique, uh, variabilities across those two? I'm sort of imagining a future project where we understand COVID by visiting a number of ICUs around the world. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Um, I'm hesitant to kind of, um, put things on the same plane cause it's, uh, it's a, I mean, I want to answer the question and also question the question to be a good academic about it, right? Yeah. Um, the 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 similarities, I think, might be um, some of the intensities of um, the kind of the moments of of what it means, and this is something that I saw constantly in the trauma ward because, of course, trauma entails the possibility of imminent death. Um, and so the kind of s- the scene of a family um, and the patient, potentially if they're conscious, if you're able to sort of track this, um, facing the possibility of loss, I think is something that we're seeing around the world. Um, you know, the meaning of, of what, it, what it means to lose a child, um, what it means to lose a parent, um, a sibling, uh, you know, uh, just to, to, to lose a person um, for no apparent 
reason. Um, and the kind of the enormity of that and the enormity of that being born out in an institution that for many people is, is very unfamiliar, very foreboding, very complicated, um, is something that I think is being played out in scenes all around the world. And the hospital is a critical site. However, I will say that I, I hope that we also get out of the hospital. Um, as someone who does a lot of time in hospitals, I think we should also get out of the hospital and think about the work of care that's being done outside of hospitals. And that goes for India and it also goes for the US. In India, for example, the, um, the healthcare workers known as ASHA workers who do a lot of the door-to-door -door work of healthcare work such as education, even vaccination drives, um, tracking cases, um, they're critical frontline workers, but because they don't kind of properly belong to the hospital may not be seen as such. And I think there's lots of ways in which American um, settings offer similar examples the vaccinators, the people who are going out now, you know, now that the vaccines are moving out of centers and on the road, um, bringing them to the people as such, you know, um, you know, th their stories are stories of care work and often of, um, very minimally or uncompensated labor. So these questions about care work, I think are, are certainly comparable um, across the US and India. Uh, my hope is, is that um, you know, we can get out of the edifice complex of the hospital at a certain point, even though it's really important um, and think about the kind of questions of care that extend beyond its walls. I've been thinking about that in terms of even, and I think you're, you're already finally attuned to this, um, maybe following the physician or the nurse or other essential workers out of the hospital into the other spaces where they've gone and had to continue the labor. And I, what I mean by that is uh, I had a neighbor in New Jersey when I was living there last year, um, and he was a anesthesiologist, is an anesthesiologist who became an intensivist. But his work didn't end when he got home because then he had to manage infection at home. And I would see his light go on in the attic space, and I knew that he was quarantining at home. And so that work and also preparing himself mentally to come down from the day and to then to prepare for the next day and even to prepare his gear, which he didn't have access to good gear, that it was a continuing form of labor that left the hospital. So I, I don't know if that's exactly what you mean, but it's, it also brings to mind that COVID has, has thrown these health laborers into a position where the normal space where we like to segregate their work is no longer the totality of their experience. I think that's absolutely resonant, and I think um, we have um, we have a lot to answer for <laughs> collectively um, about yeah. the way in which healthcare work is done. I, I can only speak for the United States, you know, as an American, but um, I, I think we have to take a very, very close look at the ways in which um, we expect care um, and the the you know, the, the efforts that need to be made to listen to workers themselves um, uh, and allowing them to question um, their professions. So one of the things that I think has been very um, important and challenging in the ICU work that I'm doing now in the U.S. with my colleagues is a sense of um, kind of uh, hearing about people questioning, you know, why uh, if 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 this is what medicine is now, is this what they is this what it was? Um, is medicine really going to be the same 
thing. Is healthcare really going to be the same after COVID? I'm talking after pandemic is quote unquote over, if it ever is mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, the the kind of the way in which the sort of emergency response, the sort of militarization of the response, the um, you know, all the things that were done in the U.S. You know, I, I'm not sure if we're done asking questions about if that was the best model and and also about how that model intersected with people who were already inserted into its structures of care work. So, um, you know, I think we should allow for um, people to question their professions or question the terms on which they work. Um, uh, what nursing work might look like um, mm. and, uh, you know, how um, it gets supported and what it's needed for. Um, it, these are really important questions that will endure long after um, ideas about the pandemic is over. And this just is getting back to kind of, I guess, to circle back to the, the, the idea about not turning the page so quickly about the next pandemic. Yes, it may be about the next pandemic, but we are um, experiencing also a change in the healthcare system. And, I, and I'm hopeful that um, there will be a lot of really wonderful research and um, examinations and policy discussions about what the system is, who it's for, and um, how people can endure it and survive it. We have a lot to answer for. That's what you said. And I, I'm really glad that um, you're there to document it. And one would hope that when the policy debates happen, either within professions themselves and rules get changed or within hospitals or in insurance halls of insurance companies or maybe in the halls of congress the kind of work you're doing right now is going to be vital to that i think so um i'm looking forward to these publications and um maybe we have to we have to close out now but can you give us a a sort of a coming attraction where are we going to find some of this work harris so the um, the ICU work will be primarily journal based. Um, it'll be in journals about um, public health, uh, global public health, and in um, social science medicine journals. We have a commentary piece out in medical anthropology. I can give you the link to that. Um, that kind of thinks with the question of heroism. My own work um, on trauma. Uh, and particularly its links to COVID-19 um, is um, in is already out in a couple of uh, places in Medical Anthropology Quarterly. Um, and I'm also happy to share those links. Um, and it's been a really um, right. amazing privilege to kind of have the ability to step outside those fora and talk to you and to others. Um, and uh, if anybody wants to contact me with the questions, I'm happy to, to, to think with them. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This has been COVID Calls at a special time today in discussion with Harris Solomon. I hope you'll join me on Thursday for my next COVID Calls discussion at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be talking with Colleen Durkatch. Harris, thanks so much. Um, Learned a lot in this time. I don't know how you're managing all of this work at at this time. I look forward to reading these further publications and for carving out an hour to talk about it with us today. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you on Thursday.